Quick disclaimer, this podcast episode includes graphic depictions of violence and racism. During the late 1960s, Colombia, along with the rest of the nation, underwent a period of unprecedented social upheaval. had started to look different, becoming more diverse and politically active. Students from a variety of backgrounds protested by the thousands, declaring opposition to the Vietnam War and support for the expanding civil rights movement. By 1970, the number of black students accepted to Columbia was the highest it had ever been. However, these students weren't being granted the same privileges as their white counterparts. They faced more than just the rigorous Columbia course load. They were over-policed by the faculty and had to navigate tensions with the overwhelming majority of white, upper-class students who dominated the school. I was part of the largest black freshman class at Columbia history. Wow. The year before, the class of 73 was the largest to that point. Do you know about how many black students you guys were a part of? We had like 90. Out of how many? I don't. I, I didn't count the rest. That that's fair. <laughs> a lot more than ninety, though. You want the total total freshman class? Yeah. A lot more than ninety. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm speaking with Daryl T. Downing, a graduate of the class of 1974. Downing played basketball for Columbia and was a well-rounded student. When Daryl and the rest of the class of '74 arrived on campus. Neither the academic nor the social environment was geared towards helping black students succeed. Could you describe the social atmosphere on campus in 1972? It's a totally white environment, totally ruled by the, at the time it was called establishment. So the beauty of the large uh, black class was that we had each other. and. Knowing the hostility, and trust me, it was very hostile, because most of us were not used to being outwardly discriminated against. When uh, Abby Hoffman and those guys and the weathermen took over the school, well, there was a black class there that were prominent and starting to change from the overt racism that was there to the so-called change of the new regime, which was still rooted in racism, which is understandable because the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, uh, was all written by white guys, and we were not included in any of that then, and right now we're still an afterthought. Downing, along with some of his peers, referenced the Weathermen, or members of the Weather Underground, as practicing a form of activism that was taking place in tandem with their own. The Weather Underground was a communist offshoot of Students for Democratic Society, 
known for perpetrating violent bombings as a form of protest. Downing and many of his peers felt excluded from this activism as a result of the overwhelmingly white demographic of the Weather Underground. Though Downing and many of his peers weren't welcomed into the activist fold made up of groups like the Weather Underground, that doesn't mean that they shied away from activism entirely. By virtue of his personality, Downing became sort of an accidental activist. Even when I went down south, I acted like I owned wherever I went because I felt I did. So, and that's how my mother had trained me because I was intelligent enough to speak, which of course gets you in more trouble. And so I spoke, I challenged, and I was deemed a rabble rouser. Downing wasn't the only black student who fell into activism in response to the treatment experience from both his peers and the Columbia administration. He was part of a group of friends that gained notoriety on campus primarily because of the administration's wariness of them. This group named itself the Purple Gang, after the Prohibition-era Jewish-American gang that gained notoriety for dominating the black market and wreaking havoc around Detroit. Melvin King Jr., a fellow Purple Gang member and student during the 1970-71 school year, shared similar sentiments. I mean, I never felt targeted by the students or anything. All right, because we would kick their ass. That's how we <laughs> felt. No, I'm serious. Okay, but I would get have a problem with the teacher and definitely with the administration and with coaches. Although King eventually dropped out because of poor academic performance, he still maintains a close bond with other members of the Purple Gang. There was six of us, all right, who hung out all the time. We used to study together. These six members mentioned by King includes Harold Snow, Mike Finley, Ron Boyd, Eldridge McKinney, Daryl Downing, and himself. King describes the group. We, we were hungry together. That was another reason why we were, you know, we hung out together because, you know, we didn't have no money. You know what I mean? Because mm. we, was, we was hungry and we were, you know, young, we were black, and, you know, we played ball. Dean Coleman... I think he had a thing, you know, about us. You know, like I said, it was a tight-knit group, and we were called the Purple Gang, and everybody knew about us on, on campus. And, all right, a couple of times, even our freshman year, we were called down to the dean's office because somebody, I forget who, whose dog, somebody's dog, one of our friends' dog, apparently pooped on the floor, you know, on our dorm floor, and Dean Coleman <laughs> wanted us to cl clean it up. And he called us all the way to the dean's office about that. Okay? And we were like, come on. You know, first of all, it wasn't our dog, all right? And, you know, it was, just, it was just silly. We thought it was silly. And we told him that. And he didn't like that. For this group of young men, the Purple Gang's existence as a friend group served as a sort of accidental pipeline to activist status. They were constantly under threat from administrators who resented their presence and just wanted to defend themselves. They were tall, athletic, and intelligent black men who, as a group, were known to be fun and fiercely loyal to each other. Members that I spoke to suggested that their presence on campus and fidelity towards one another was an inherently intimidating prospect to administrators, even before the incident. Henry Coleman, Dean of Columbia College, was strapping, tall, square-jawed, and meticulously groomed. He was a School of Engineering and Applied Science graduate, Spectator alum, and Korean War veteran, 
notorious for keeping his steely demeanor while being held hostage by members of the Students for Democratic Society during the Vietnam War protests of 1968. By most accounts, he was well-liked. Eldridge McKinney was a Columbia College sophomore, aspiring lawyer, and member of the Purple Gang. He was also tall, handsome, the New York Times article refers to him as a six-footer, and from the south side of Chicago. McKinney was a part of the community of black students on campus. He had a stellar academic record, but was humble about it. What was he like when you first met him? Very intense. He was the valedictorian. Everybody was a genius. He was the valedictorian. I wasn't even the valedictorian. I was just a sharp brother. I, was, I knew some things. But these guys was, I was, I was impressed. He was well-spoken. He was very intense. So, he was just, as far as I was going to say, he was just like all of us. Eldridge was my roommate that year. Really? So, you know, we, we had, you know, a lot of good times together. All right, first of all, we weren't roommates at the beginning of the year. We each had a white roommate. He kicked his out and moved me in. One of the things that he would do was, he was, he was funny because he would, he liked to wrestle. And it didn't make any difference what I was doing. If he felt like he wanted to wrestle, he would jump on me, and I would say, come on, he get off me, and he would just wrestle. We would have, and I would have to wrestle him, you know, but it, it was all in fun, though. You know what I mean? Eldridge McKinney, or as his friends call him, E, was his high school's valedictorian, a Boy Scout leader, and a member of just about every academic club his school offered. Eldridge McKinney was a classic Ivy League overachiever. On the afternoon of July 25, 1972, Eldridge McKinney burst into Dean Henry Coleman's office, produced a 38 caliber handgun, and opened fire. Um, did you know that Eldridge possessed a firearm, and was it normal for students to have firearms and things like that? Not normal for students to have firearms in New York City uh, in, in college. Hmm. But he's from Chicago. Chicago, everybody has a pistol. Yeah. So we were like, yo, man, you're not in Chicago anymore. But then you go to the history of of Chicago survival. If you go back to that time, they had a gang called the Blackstone Rangers who was actually politically connected. And Mayor Daly actually halfway sanctioned them. Everybody carried pistols going to and from school. So we said, wow, man, you don't have to do that because we're here. But the norm for the people from Chicago was that. I didn't grow up in Chicago. So so if I was there, I probably would have had a pistol too. You're a victim or a product of your environment. A lot had changed for McKinney during the first two years he spent at Columbia. He had a difficult time adjusting to college life and was no longer at the top of his class. As a second semester sophomore, he'd been suspended for poor academic performance and Later that year, Columbia College decided he would not be reinstated as a student at the university the following term. McKinney was upset, as any ambitious student would be. He'd worked hard to get into college, only to be dismissed halfway through his undergraduate career. The injustice with which the administration treated him and other black students also fueled his indignation. King reflects. Okay, if he felt you disrespected him, all right, I remember he would knit his eyebrows, and he would get that look on his face. And, you know, it's kind of scary. When the, thing, the episode happened, I wasn't surprised, even though I had no clue about it happening. 
On the day of the shooting, McKinney had first sought out Philip Benson, the director of student interests. During a heated meeting, McKinney vocalized his intent to confront the dean and demand his reinstatement. Benson, taken aback by McKinney's obvious indignation, had a, quote, suspicious feeling about the student's intentions. After McKinney had left in pursuit of the dean, Benson called Coleman and warned him that McKinney was coming. Dean Coleman was shot six times in the chest, wrist, and jaw. His injuries left him with two broken arms, a pierced lung, and the alleged loss of 12 pints worth of blood. After four grueling hours of reconstructive surgery and two days in an intensive care unit, he lived, recovered from his injuries, and barely a month later returned to his position as dean for the 1972 fall term. McKinney, on the other hand, disappeared. Shortly after the shooting, the police sought him for questioning, but they were unable to locate the student-turned-fugitive. He was never taken into custody, and as of today, he has never been found. For 49 years, Eldridge McKinney, a then 20-year-old political science major, has managed to evade the media, state police, and decades-long investigations by the FBI. Even public pleas by his family and civil rights leader Roy Innes could not provoke him to resurface. Just as shocked as the rest of the nation, the Purple Gang mourned their friend's sudden absence. The day it happened, I had no idea why the police was coming and dragging me out. I said, oh, what's going on? But they were cool. They were cool. So they came to get me, asked me. They didn't handcuff me or anything. But black people, when they see police, they always have trepidation because you don't have to do anything to be in trouble. So when I got to the police station, all of my friends were sitting there too. We said, what happened? And then that's when I found out what happened. What did they tell you had happened? That the dean had got shot and they wanted to know where uh, Mr. McKinney was. Melvin King was still back in Boston, in disbelief. The same E that had cracked jokes on the sofa in King's family home just days before was now a wanted criminal. They had come up to see me the weekend before the thing happened, before the shooting happened. Sorry, sorry. They came to Boston. And I had no clue what was going to happen. However, King's distance from New York City did not protect him from the investigation efforts. My father knocks on the door, and he says, the police are here. I don't know what they want. You know, I hadn't done anything. Next thing I know, you know, they co I come downstairs, and they tell me what Eldridge did. And first thing, I didn't even say anything at first. I mean, you know, first of all, I wasn't surprised for whatever reason. Okay, I mean, I, you know, I know he's, I knew he was nuts. You know, I didn't think he didn't know how nuts, but the fact that I knew him, it just didn't surprise me. All right. Mm -hmm. And later on, I found out why, you know, what the reasons were. Um, so they came, they followed me where I live. I live near, um, a, what you call a T station, MBT station. And I started walking towards there. And I forgot my key, so I had to walk back. And I noticed all these cars making new turns, you know, and turning, you know, it was obvious that they were following me. Mm -hmm. um, about two or three days later, the New York detectives came up and talked to me. And a week later, the FBI came and talked to me. Downing indicated tension between law enforcement and the Purple Gang. Well, it was a circus-like atmosphere. Uh, even though I played ball and I liked attention, that attention I did not like. And I didn't like it mainly because that, uh, no one believed 
the police, mainly, that none of us knew what was going on. But the beauty of it all was that we did not know. And so, as the time went on, and it was the talk of everything, so we just decided we wouldn't say anything about it. Let everybody else talk and ask us, and then since we knew nothing, there was nothing to say. Media coverage at the time advertised the Purple Gang being taken into custody with excitement, touting detailed plans and high expectations for McKinney's capture. The Purple Gang maintained, however, that they too had been completely blindsided by the shooting and had taken no part in it. So do you remember the last time you saw Eldridge and when was it? That I don't remember because, you know, when you did that traumatizing experience makes you forget a lot of things. Yeah, if, if you're uncomfortable, we don't. Yeah, I'm not uncomfortable. I just can't remember right. the last time. That I, last time, the last time. I know he had to go to summer school. Yeah. And I know that he had to make up some grades. And to my knowledge, he made the grades up. And I then the, the next thing I remember is that is that he, he was not taken off of academic probation after he made up the grades. So that's the last I remember, and then as the perennial all hell broke loose. In a way, we took we took the hit for a lot of the students, so they, they got less harassment than we did. I know I got tremendously harassed, but I fought back. After the shooting, many of Eldridge's fellow Purple Gang members faced the same academic struggle that he had. Between the pressures of a rigorous course load and constant scrutiny from the press, law enforcement, and the entire university, it was difficult for them to stay in class and out of the limelight. The rate of attrition for these students was abysmal. Only four out of seven of the Purple Gang members completed their undergraduate degree at Columbia. I think only two of us ended up going straight through. I think Daryl went straight through four years and Snow went straight through. Mike Finley and Mike Gay ended up taking, you know, an extra year. So instead of, you know, like when freshman year, they ended up getting out in five. You know, I never went back, and Jan never went back, and Ron never went back. But the Purple Gang had more than their studies disrupted. For years, Downing said, the FBI targeted these teenagers, following them to their houses and tapping their phones. Which was cool because the FBI was, was, was following us around and tapping our phones for 10 straight years. Because once a year they would come and ask me for an interview. They would call me and I would go in and then one day they came to my house, my apartment. I said, you ever come to my apartment again because every time you call me, I come in and I tell you the same thing. If I knew, I wouldn't tell you, but I don't know. And don't come to my house ever again. Hmm. So, well, we have to let you know that the case will always be open and there's no statute of limitations. I said, and there's none on you either. Don't come to my house. And they never came back again, but my phone was always tapped. You could always tell, you could, you could hear. In a way, McKinney's actions, and by extension those of the Purple Gang, were seen as activism regardless of whether or not that was their intention. Other students going through the same trials looked to McKinney as a peer who was taking a stand for himself and others. Other students were like, some, some of even thought that we were um, elite, like, this is the Black Panther era, things of that nature. So. So a lot of the brothers that came after me looked up to me for standing up for them. Yeah. So, and I wasn't even thinking I was doing that. You know, I just stood my ground and I took hits all the time. Yeah. It was horrible. When you're set up against the system, they ain't gonna get you.
So, in a way, you know, his martyrdom martyred a lot of us. So. Why do you think that they're still looking for him 50 years later? Because they didn't find him. Beat the system. Dean Coleman did not die. He got better as a person, I guess as an administrator. I don't know anything about that. But he did not die. He got shot him five times. And I'm thinking that he was just trying to wound him, actually. I don't know. I don't know. But you can't get away. They told me that it would never be, it would never be closed. He's not been apprehended after over 50 years. That's the tragedy. The tragedy of the situation is his sacrifice actually made student life better because the awareness of what may happen made, made, made people treat us better. Um, do you have any thoughts about what might have happened to Mr. McKinney afterwards, where he went, what he did? I know he's brilliant, so him not being apprehended means that Wherever he is, he's doing, he's being brilliant. And his sacrifice is, it's a shame that he had to sacrifice his identity, basically, I guess, so that the rest of us can go forward and achieve what, what has been achieved. Because mm -hmm. there is lots and lots and lots and lots of success out of that class. Yeah. Do you think he's still alive today? I hope so. I hope so. I hope he's laughing and saying, don't worry about me, I'm cool. You know, I just wish he could walk back and they say, you know what, everything has been forgiven and, we, and it's been a long time. I wish that could happen. Downing offers his thoughts on the complex, enduring power in McKinney's action. E's crime spurred conversation and action, albeit inadvertently. If you don't respond to negative activity, people tend to continue. Yeah. But if they hear that you or some black students rebel and actually shot the dean, maybe they'll treat you more fairly. If you really want to have change, face up to the problems and address the change. Don't fake the moves because the scar is, just, I mean, the scab still hides the scars and the infection. If you look around, we still face the same problems, and it's even worse because people have been led to believe that everything is good. It's never going to be good until you face all of the ills straight on, and then you can address and fix what's happening. That hasn't been done. You can't solve this problem by acting like you fixed it with a fake affirmative action approach. How do you really be fair? Be fair. You know what fair is. You know that if you have the same situation, it's going to be the same way. You're going to take the white guy because the people are safer around white people. It's as simple as that. And that happens right now. All we need is, like James Brown said, we don't want nobody to give us nothing. If you open up the door, we'll get it ourselves. That's James Brown. Are you hip to James Brown? Yeah. Okay, there you go. <laughs> yeah, music transcends generations. See, you know, we were activists anyhow, most of us. But you know, that was extreme activism. Mm -hmm.